Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 this morning. And as we begin, I often think we don't put ourselves in the biblical story in the right places. What do I mean by that? When you hear the story of David and Goliath, where would you normally put yourself in that story as who? I'm David, yeah, right? Like I'm David and I got to defeat my giant, right? But in reality, where are we located in that story? We're the nation of Israel on the sidelines, cowering in fear, afraid of that giant, and we can't defeat that giant. We need someone to go out and do that for us who is Jesus, right? Yeah, right? And so most of the time when we read the Bible, we look at the biblical characters who ultimately are pointing to Jesus, and we make them all about us. I think sometimes when we read the Gospels, we read about these people called the Pharisees, and we're like, ooh, those people, I'm never like those people. That's not me. I'm one of the disciples. And and it may be you are. Like a follower of Jesus is much closer to being a disciple, Peter, than we would be a Pharisee. But we're going to read a story this morning about the Pharisees, and about the tradition of men. And on this first slide, I have like four major groups of people that were going on in uh, Jesus's day. And, you know, and we basically could call these the Democrats, the Republicans, the independents, and the people who don't care. Right? Like there's nothing new under the sun. There's religious political groups back in Jesus's day, just like they are today. And based on your personality, based on who you are as a person, who would you identify with in the stories of the Gospels of Jesus? Would you consider yourself to be a Pharisee? Someone who tried to keep the law of God, the law of Moses, as strictly as possible to show they were faithful to God. I think in some ways we give the Pharisees a bad rap. Because what they did is they took a good thing and made it an ultimate thing. When you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes something we worship that's terrible. But do you know why the Pharisees were so concerned about keeping the law? They thought if they got all of Israel to come back and obey the law, God would come and send his Messiah. Doesn't that sound like a good reason? That's what they wanted. And so they kept the law like very, very tightly, as we will see. And that became something far more than it should have become. Or you have the Sadducees. These are the colluders with Rome. They, they thought that when Jesus came, he was going to be with the ones who were in power. And so they better get in with the ones who were with power. Because the Messiah is going to come and conquer all these nations. Or you have a zealot. The zealots are a little bit more radical. They're going to take the kingdom by force. I don't know if you know this, but there were zealots of one of the 12 disciples, Simon the Zealot. He was one who was out like killing and trying to murder Roman soldiers. Like this is who's following Jesus or these zealots who are going to secretly and quietly just take one Roman soldier's life at a time until they're all out of Israel. 
So these are like the action guys. And then you have the Essenes. They're the, uh, the hideaways, okay, the Essenes. And you can read about different Essenes in the scriptures as well. But these were oftentimes very smart, educated people. And they thought we need to get away from all of this evil and we just need to go hide away from it and pray and worship God and have our own little enclave over here and get away. So let me ask yourself, if you were transported back 2,000 years ago, are you a Pharisee? Are you a Are you a zealot? Are you a Because before Jesus showed up on the scene, more than likely you belonged to one of those four groups of people. And now Jesus is going to come on the scene in Matthew chapter 15, where we find ourselves this morning, and he's going to make this conversation take place with the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 says this. Some of the Pharisees, <clears throat> teachers of the law, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, and stopped. Have to think of like, we don't think about this, but Jesus is up in Galilee. And obviously people are hearing about his ministry, teaching miracles, all of that. And the leaders in Jerusalem are getting angry. They have like a secret meeting in Jerusalem. Like they are like colluding together. Like there's this guy up there and we got to go deal with him. There's all these bad guys who are working together behind the scenes, having secret meetings. <clears throat> and are sending a group of them up north to Galilee. So they come from, <coughs> excuse me, from Jerusalem, and they ask Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. We're like, how dare they? How dare Jesus replied, Jesus is great for so many reasons. But he's just like, well, that's a neat question. Let me ask you a different question. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. And so you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, was right when he said this about you about 600 years earlier. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are merely human rules. The question I want to ask before we pray and jump into this passage is there's a difference between wanting to participate in the life of God and enjoy his presence in his life that is a totally different desire and passion from what we see with a bunch of people who just obey rules. Do you love God as he is revealed to us in the person of Jesus by his spirit? Or do you just love being moral? Do you love being conservative? Do you love being right? Because this is what Jesus is after. So Father, help us 
by the power of your spirit this morning to hear from you, to have our hearts warmed with the beauty of the gospel, and may the gospel drive out our self-righteous tendencies. May you help us want you above all. Help us to love you above all. And obviously we're humans and in this life is impossible to do that fully, but I pray that today would be just another fresh reminder of the beauty of who you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, the issue here is the traditions of men. And my general MO about traditions is this. Traditions suck. Okay? Like, I, that's just my, I've always been the fish who swims against the stream. There's some people who can just be in any stream and go along with, I wish I was more like that. I wish I could just be peaceful and just kind. But I usually find myself in situations where I'm running against the stream. And most of the time in my life, it's because I've been the one who's been going against traditions, going against what things are actually true. Just give you a little background to my life. My mom and dad are not here. They're in Florida this month, so I get to talk about them. I'm just kidding. They're probably listening right now. The best thing my parents did for me was taught me that the Bible is God's word. That is where the rule of life and our practice and all that we believe is sourced in. The Bible doesn't have everything about it. It's not a science book. It's not a math book. Okay? But what I am saying is like the Bible is our authority. And so as I grew up in the church and they kept telling me the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and I'd be like, well, where does the Bible say I can't go see movies? Please show me. Where does the Bible say I can't drink a beer? Show me. Where does the Bible say that I can't do X? And of course, you can make like one, two, three, four jumps to get to these places where it'd be like, well, it's probably not best. And I, it just began this whole like journey revolution. This is basically how I became a pastor is through this like, I'm annoyed that all these rules exist and I think they're dumb. So let's figure out like what is true. So I went to go study the Bible and here I am. Okay, like, that's the journey that your pastor has come to. And obviously God has done a lot in my heart in that time and, and so forth. But we come to this passage again, and what we're seeing is a bunch of religious freaks come and say, here are the traditions that we have. And how dare you, Jesus, in one sense, who is after the same thing we're after is a revolution to bring the Messiah. We don't think you're the Messiah, but we believe that you're like doing, in a sense, the same thing we're doing, but you're not doing the same thing we're doing. It's like how many Christians are like, we love Jesus, but we are not doing the same thing. Because of tradition. Because these are things that just have been passed down to us. These are the things that make us comfortable. And the issue this morning that we won't even get an answer to until next week, sorry, but you'll be thankful we won't be here for four hours, okay? But like, we'll get the answer next week. But the issue is, it's so weird. It's about washing hands. It's like a mom to a little kid. You can't eat until you wash your hands. Mark chapter 7, Mark gives us a little more information about this story. And he says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat 
unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. This is doing dishes twice, before the meal and after the meal, to ensure the purity of God remains in his people. Again, it is a deep down good desire for the ritual purity before the sacrifice of Jesus for Israel to maintain. But the traditions and the practices that they built upon these things that then they held up as truth is so far removed from the heart of the gospel, from the heart of what Jesus is after, that Jesus has to do this discussion with the Pharisees. I think Mark and Matthew record this story to help us see what Jesus actually came to do, what Jesus actually cares about. If you want to think of it this way, what the, what the Pharisees did is they took a rule, a, a law of God that was there on purpose to promote love for God and love for neighbor. That was all God's laws were. That when you look at the laws in the Old Testament, they're not like, oh, I can't lie. No, when you lie to your neighbor, what are you doing? You're defrauding them. You're hurting them. You're harming them. You can't commit adultery. Dang it. Oh, dang it. I can't go. If I commit adultery, I'm not going to hurt that person's spouse. That's not love. All the laws were given for love and, and community and flourishing. And so they would take one of those good laws that God made to promote love for him and love for our neighbor, and they would, we call it, build fences around it. Okay, so one instance is like if you, if, like drinking an, a beer, right? Like if you drink a beer and you think that's wrong, well, what's the next fence you build? Don't go to a bar. Don't go to a party. Don't go, the next thing you know, you have like 16 layers. So it's good. Like, if you're going to break that law, you got to go through how many roadblocks? Like, you got to cruise, like, right, to get through. Now, I want to stop and just say something very honest. And if you struggle with alcohol, maybe you need 16 blocks. Does that make sense? There's things in my life I need to put 16 blocks in. But that's not the basis of my identity. It's not my relationship with God. It doesn't give me any sort of elevation or betterness than any of you, even though I'm a pastor. So there's wisdom in setting up some roadblocks for us. Does that make sense? But what I am saying is that in those roadblocks, those are not what we hold other people accountable to. We hold people accountable to loving God and loving our neighbor. And I promise you, every law that we have as Christians will come back to that. And so the Jews would build these rules. And the rule they're talking about right now is ritual purity. And I'm not going to go back to Leviticus and bore you. Bore you. Sorry. Bore you. Yes. With all the ritual purity laws. What I do want to do is just give you a few points about the purity laws themselves. First, the, the tradition of the elders believed that the hands were subject to their own defilement and were regarded to be defiled unless recently washed. Okay, so your hands apparently, if someone told me once upon a time how many germs were on your hands and I guess it's more than six. There's like a million. You know, like it's just a very dirty thing. 
which is probably why all the moms are like, wash your hands, right? But one of the things that's interesting with ritual purity is they believe it was very contagious. It was not wrong to be impure, to be ritually impure. So like there was rules like you couldn't touch a dead animal. If you touched a dead animal, you became impure. Was it sinful to touch the dead animal? No, it just made you impure. And you had to like go do all these different rules to become pure again. And so purity was like contagious. And so if your food, sorry, no, if your hands are dirty and you touch your food, what then becomes dirty? The food itself. And the ritual impurity is passed on to the food that you're eating or drinking. And then third, they believed that when the food went into your body, it defiled your whole body. And how dare a religious, pious person who loves God allow your dirty hands to go to your dirty food, to go into your dirty body, to make you a dirty person. This is the tradition of the elders. This was a very normal, common way of life for Israel. If we went back there right now, we'd be like, this is so crazy. But if they came and visited us right now, they'd look at this thing and be like, what is this? Why? It's just normal life. This was normal life for them. You ever like, let's be honest, you ever hang out with Christians and they don't pray before a meal? What do you do? Shame, shame, shame. How do they not pray? Don't they love God? Like, that's our, that's our MO. I'm going to be honest with you. We pray at the end of our meal. Like, there's a whole different reason for that. But there's sometimes we forget to pray. It's terrible. But it's like, that's the reality. It's like, it's just normal life for them to believe this. And it would be normal life for us, especially if you're one of those rule keepers, tell me what to do, what to do, what to do. You would just be washing your hands all day long. And so this is the issue that is at stake. And as I mentioned as we're reading through it, I love Jesus because he is not going to deal with that issue yet. He's going to get there and he will deal with it very wisely. But first, he wants to challenge the general credibility of the people coming after him. You're bringing me your tradition of your elders. Okay, well, let me just take a step back and let's just look at what you are doing as a group of people. And Jesus goes on to quote uh, the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And then he also adds this little phrase in Matthew chapter uh, 15 that anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. This comes from Exodus chapter 21, a chapter after the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 21, it's a list of capital death penalties. And so here's the list, just like to give you a little insight into what's going on. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, it's not done intentionally, but God lets it happen. They're to flee the place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person will be taken from my altar and put to death. Number two, anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Isn't that just crazy? Like, can you imagine attacking your old father and putting him to death? It's just a weird, weird story. Anyone, number three, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, or the victim has been sold or still in the kidnapper's possession. And then number five, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. 
Jesus brings up the fifth commandment to honor your parents. Honoring your parents has far more than just obedience. Like I think sometimes the fifth commandment ends as soon as you get married and you don't have to honor your parents anymore. And I don't think that's what the intention of the fifth commandment was. To honor your parents was even after you're out of their house and even when you're married, it is to continue to uh, revere them, respect them. And one of the primary things you were called to do to honor your father and mother was to actually provide for them financially, take care of them. As they're getting older and can't make all the money and they can't like work in the field and you are the one who is actually responsible to help them in their older life. I think good thing Jesus ended the law because that's like flipped upside down. Most parents now are helping their kids, right? Get through life. But to really honor your parents, and I would encourage all of us To honor them is in their older days to help them, to serve them, to continue to help meet their financial and needs that they have on a daily basis. That is what it means to honor your father and your mother. And yet Jesus says, okay guys, here's the fifth commandment. It's a pretty important one. Everyone knows about it. You would agree with it. But you actually advocate that what a person can do is they cannot financially support their parents if they make an oath to God to give the money that they would use to support their parents to the temple. And what they're saying is like, the the Greek word here is korban. It's like a korban, like the korban rule, if you study this at all. It's like you could say, you know what, I'm not going to support my parents. I'm going to give that money to the church. The church would never do that, right? I mean, would never sell, like, indulgences to get you free space into heaven. Like, the church has never said, don't support people who are poor, but give money to us so we can build nice big buildings. It's no different. I'm hoping you, like, you see, this is no different today than it is back then. The Jewish leaders were like, give us your money. We'll take all the money you can have. In fact, we will adjust the fifth commandment to get more money. And Jesus comes to these people and he's like, okay, so you're going to tell me that my disciples are unworthy and not followers of God because they don't wash their hands, while at the same time, you're going to be people who are going to abandon the fifth commandment to get more money for your temple and your privileges and your rights. Something's not adding up here. Something is not working, Jesus is saying. And so Jesus goes on to say two things. Number one, you hypocrites. Jesus has talked about hypocrites and hypocrisy already in Matthew, but this is the very first time that Jesus calls someone very specifically a hypocrite. I don't know about you, but reading the story on this side of time, 2,000 years later, it would scare the mess out of me for Jesus to call me a hypocrite. Here is the Son of God looking at people who are concerned about the small, minor things of washing hands, which is not even a biblical reality, biblical law, but just a tradition, who are over here breaking the fifth commandments, encouraging and leading the people in breaking the fifth commandments. And Jesus says, you are hypocrites. 
I say this often, but I love being reminded of myself, so I'm going to say it to you again. Do you know that the early church did not call themselves Christians? The outside world in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 were the first people to call the church Christians. You know why they were called Christians? Because the person who they were proclaiming in the life that he lived, they lived just like him. And they said, this is a little Christ. This is someone who's mimicking Jesus. The outside world called themselves, called them Christians. It's interesting today that now inside the church, we call ourselves what? Christians. And what does the outside world call us? Hypocrites. Like the reality is, is that to be a Christian is to actually be a little Christ follower, that you are living a life so marked by his life that other people would actually call you a Christian. You don't even have to make it yourself. Do other people call you a Christian? Or do you just stand up and say, I'm a Christian? I think in a lot of sense, that's where hypocrisy comes from. I think the greatest hypocrisy is to think that you're not a hypocrite. We are all hypocrites. All of us in this room who claim to follow Jesus do not live up to that standard, do you? No. So you're a hypocrite. And the sooner you own that, the sooner the gospel becomes real to you. The more you refuse to be called hypocrite, the further the grace of God is being removed from you. To be a hypocrite is to be someone who, in this sense, is judging people by standards they don't even keep. But as Christians, we need to recognize that we act hypocritically, but we do not judge people based on our own traditions. Jesus calls these people hypocrites. He says, number two, the prophet Isaiah was right about you. I mean, he didn't even know he was writing about you, but he was writing about you. And he says in Psalm, sorry, Psalm, sorry, sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 8 and 9. I'm going the wrong way on my slideshow. It says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but the teachings are merely human rules. Jesus here is quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And just a little context of Isaiah 28 and 29. Isaiah 28, the chapter 4, is a picture of God coming and redeeming and saving Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 29 is a picture of why God needs to come and save Israel. And the reason God is going to come and save Israel is because of their hypocrisy. Because their hearts are far from God and God is going to have to do something. He's going to send them away into exile, but one day he's going to bring them back. And he's going to give them new hearts, the prophets say. And this becomes a word to the wise. God takes no delight in your outward conformity with no inward passion and love for Him. God takes zero delight in your ritualistic practices that are totally void of a passion for Him. He hates when His people speak His name without any deep admiration and finding beauty in who He is for them. So, for instance, 
This is not a new concept in the book of in the Old Testament. Isaiah is not the only one to deal with this issue. Psalm 51, when David is confessing his sin about Bathsheba, he makes this claim. God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices that you are pleased with are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Or the prophet Amos, I think, has even stronger words. God says to Israel through the prophet Amos, I hate, if you don't get it, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your church services. Even though you come and sing, even though you give online, I'm not accepting them. Your peace offerings of going to MC. I will not look upon them. Stop singing to me. Throw your guitars away. Not true, Mike. Keep it. Why? Because there's no love for God. A love for God would produce a, a, a justice that rolls down like waters. There'd be a righteousness that's an ever-flowing stream. And the traditions of the elders in Matthew 15 are no different than the time in Isaiah or the time in Amos or even in David's day, which means this, church, this is not a one-time problem. This is a human problem. Whether it be David, 14, well, 1400 BC, 14 years before Jesus, whether it be Amos and Isaiah between 8 and 600 BC, or 600 years after when Jesus is talking to his disciples, or us sitting in this room right now, there is a reality that there are traditions of elders that we follow to have merit with God, and God hates all of it. The great enemy to Christianity is religion. That is the great enemy to our faith. And as we close out this passage this morning, I want to make some distinctions for us that get us ready for the conclusion next week. And these distinctions are between religion and the gospel. Religion, the tradition of the elders, and that whole way of life says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel would actually say the exact opposite. I am accepted, therefore I obey. So I ask the question, why do you obey? To gain the favor of God? Or because you already have it? Those are very different same words, different order, but very different ways of life. Very different ways of thinking about who we are. Justification, it's a big word that we use in the New Testament, which means our relationship with God that we are declared to be right, comes exclusively and only by grace through faith. There is no amount of works that you can do to get back up, to climb the ladder to God, because I promise you, the ladder isn't tall enough. You'll be climbing forever and never getting to the pinnacle of heaven through your works. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, faith in Him, gives you complete and full acceptance. 
Not 99%. All of it. Number two, religion. You obey God to get things from God. The gospel will tell you you obey God to get God. None of you give online hoping that God won't take your job away from you, will you? Do you? None of you give and serve other people hoping God's going to help you. Isn't there always in that nagging in the back of our mind that if we do right things for God, He's going to make our lives better? If you're honest with yourself, I think lots of times that's why we do right things. We obey God, not to get God, but to get things from God. God becomes what we would call a stepping stone to my success. I need and want this above all, and I believe God is going to get me there, and He's going to give it to me, and so how do I get God to give it to me? I obey. God is not your outcome. Your outcome is your own job, your own life, your own finances. Whatever that outcome is, it is not God. And that is religion. But it looks so close, doesn't it? To the gospel way of life where you obey God to get God. We're both serving. We're both singing. We're both doing very similar activities with very different outcomes. The gospel says the greatest joy in your life is to participate in the life, love, and light of God. And in His presence, there is fullness of joy. And so it is not a means to actually something greater. The greatest joy is to be in the presence of God because there, there is no shame. There's no, there's no sin. There's no defilement. There's no broken relationships. There's no insecurity. There's no fear. And there's no anger. When, I mean, I can't even imagine a world where there's no anger. That's fullness of joy. Because you can use God to get whatever you want, but I promise you, whenever you get there, you're still going to be insecure. You're still going to be afraid. You're still going to be angry. Congratulations, you have some more money to be more angry with. Sometimes I think we need to look at it that way. To see the tomfoolery, the stupidity of what we're actually using God for. And God sometimes says, here you go, have it all. So that you can see your own stupidity. Number three, the gospel and the religion are different by motivations. Motivation for the Pharisees, were often fear and pride. I, I, I think like if you're a religious leader, your motivation was more pride. That was you had privilege, you had status, you had wealth, you were part of the in crowd. Meanwhile, like the poor Pharisees, they obeyed God because they were afraid that if they didn't, God was going to get them. When you actually begin to analyze and look at the motivational structures of our heart that we looked at a few months ago under the gospelization series on the nature of the heart, is that those motivational structures of fear and pride are what drive obedience. They drive what we do. And the good news of the gospel says, if Jesus has come, what do you have to be afraid of? There's nothing to fear. And if Jesus had to come, how good could you really be? If there was any other way for Jesus to actually come and save you, he would have done it. In fact, he prayed about it. And God said no. And yet, we think we're good. 
Now, see what the gospel actually does is it drives out, it dispels your fear and brings you up to give you complete assurance of your relationship with God and your standing in life. And it brings the proud down and says, you're so terrible that this is the only way it could happen. We get to meet in the middle. Religion <clears throat> find their worth in what they do for God. Whereas the gospel finds their worth in Christ's doing for us. Where is your worth? Where is your identity lie? Where does it really take its anchor? When circumstances go wrong in your life, a self-righteous religious person will get angry at God or himself. Because you think you deserve the good, comfortable life. See, your worth is related to the circumstances that you think you deserve. But a gospel answer, solution to when circumstances go wrong is yes, this is uncomfortable. Yes, I don't like this. I'm not jumping up and down at this great trial I'm in. But at the same time, I know God is allowing this for my good. Or, Where's your worth lie when you get criticized? Do you get furious? Are you devastated? Like some people, when you get criticized, some people are like, oh, I am so bad. I, like, and they just go, and other people get very defensive. They get devastated. They get angry. Why? Because I have to think of myself as a good person. And so threats to my self-image must be put away at all costs. But when your worth is found in Jesus and you're criticized, you can say, you know what? I'm not good. That's okay. You're right. In fact, if you really knew me, you know I'm far worse than what you just told me. Because your worth, your identity is not built on what you do, what you believe, how you behave. Your identity is built on the performance that Jesus Christ has done everything for you. It frees you from criticism. Religious people are very acutely a sins of others. Gospel people, as I just mentioned, are very aware of their own sins. Spouses, how many sins can you name of your, of your wife, of your spouse? How quick can you say, came up with that same number about your own life? See, I think there's this self-righteousness that we can like look at other people and be like, they're doing this, 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 and this. And you know the irony of all of it is, is you are what you criticize. How many people are Pharisees to the Pharisees? How many people look at someone who's living a pharisaical lifestyle and, ironically, act the same way towards that person as a Pharisee acts towards other people? You're better. I'm not a Pharisee. Oh, I know the gospel. I know how the gospel works. I'm not like those people. And all you're doing is you're becoming what you criticize. That's the irony of sin, is that so many times what you criticize, you really are. So you get mad at people all the time over something, maybe you should take a little stock in yourself and be like, you know what, that's me. You know why you can criticize it so well in other people? 
Because you know it so well of your own life. Are you aware of your own depravity, your own shortcomings? Are you aware that you are a terrible wretch and it is only the goodness of God that saves you, not your works? I would love for this to be a place where we call out sin in each other's lives. We do it out of love, fully aware that I am far worse than the person I'm judging. And the Bible says don't judge, right? Anyone know the next phrase? Unless you be judged. So, the idea is not be like, you do whatever you want, I can't judge you. No, the idea is like, if you're going to judge people, know that that same type and level of judgment you give on other people is going to come right back on you. So if you judge people harshly, guess what's coming right back on you? Harsh judgment. But if you love people and you judge them out of love, guess what's coming back to you? Loving judgments. Religious people always fails. Their way of life always fails because it can only lead to pride or despair. Whereas the gospel way of life always succeeds because it will always produce humility and joy. Running through these for the sake of time. But Jesus says in Matthew 23, we'll get there in about 2029. 20, so I'm not giving away anything. You'll forget it by then. But he tells, the relig- he tells the religious leaders that you go over land and sea. You're great missionaries. And you're making disciples of yourselves. But you know what you're actually making? People twice the children of hell that you are. That's like strong language from Jesus. That when you go and make a Pharisaic disciple, you're making someone worthy of hell twice as much as you are yourself. The outcome of this way of life is a life of hell, of separation from God, of never experiencing freedom and peace and joy. Whereas the gospel will tell you, your children of God's new creation, a world to dwell with Him forever and ever. And finally this morning, religion manifests itself in critical and defensive spirits. I've been trying to do this really a lot recently. It's just like when situations come my way, do I get defensive about that situation? Do I become critical of the people involved in that situation. I think if we looked at our own lives throughout the week, how many times we get defensive and critical would show how self-righteous you really are. Because defensiveness is not loving your neighbor. It's not loving God. Critical spirits is definitely not loving your neighbor. It is not loving God. Religious people manifest over and over and over defensive, critical spirits. Do you always have to be right? Do you always have to defend yourself? Do you always have to tell people why you do what you do? Are you always talking about other people and what they're doing in their life and why they're so bad and what they should be doing right? 
If that is not motivated by love, if it is not like this person who I keep hearing about keeps doing all this stuff to me, and to our church, and to our MC, or whoever it is, if we're not looking at those people and saying, man, they are not experiencing the life of God. They are so angry that they're doing this. I wish God would get a hold of their heart so that God could actually reach down. They could experience this freedom. That's not being critical. That's like loving them. But what do we do? We're like, oh, those stupid people. They do this, this, and that. I'm, I'm good. I'm like, aren't you glad Jesus doesn't treat you that way? He doesn't walk up to you and be like, all right, you've done that enough times here. I'm washing my hands. Have a good day. No, Jesus is here saying, I want you to stop that stupid behavior. Because I want you to experience freedom in life and where there's security and joy. And that's what the gospel actually produces. It manifests a love for God through our neighbor. Can you imagine a group of people this size, like just this, I mean, we're bigger than most churches in the New Testament, who would genuinely love each other and stop being critical, stop being defensive, stop making your traditions of your elders, of your rules to be the norm for all people. And to make the good news of Jesus central to who we are. We would change our city. God, help us to be self-aware right now, not of just our shortcomings, but of the grace of God that frees us from living in guilt and shame and fear. We do want to confess and acknowledge our self-righteousness, ways that we uphold our traditions, but I pray that you'd also give us grace to see that We've already been forgiven before we asked. You're cleansing us right now and you're making us become more like the person that Jesus was, is, and will be. So we commit our lives to you this morning, asking you to help us continue to walk in faith and continue to grow. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.